Hey everyone, welcome to Health Points. We've got another episode today, uh, another fantastic episode with Shivani, the founder of Brightlobe. So Brightlobe is an organization on a mission to promote health, physical and psychological development outcomes in children through games and toys. And Shivani has a background in computer science, neuroscience and software development with previous roles implementing web and mobile platforms, including STEM, public engagement and financial broadsheets. Uh, Shivani, thank you very much for joining and it's great to have you on the episode today. Thank you very much for having me. You want to say hello, Pete, while you're here? Hi, Shivani. Hi, everyone. I'm looking forward to going a bit deeper and finding out a bit more. So it would be great to start, Shivani, tell you about kind of your background and how you ended up pioneering the role of serious games in what you do at Brightlobe and everything beyond that too. Sure. So I started my career as a neuroscience researcher. It was a fellowship program through the NIH, the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland in the U.S., that is a U.S. government agency that focuses on biomedical science and, and clinical care. And my focus initially for the time that I was there was actually in virology, which seems particularly relevant given the this, this status of the world right now. But I quickly became really interested in pediatrics. And that wasn't because of what I was doing in the laboratory. It was because of what I was observing in the hospital. I used to encounter a lot of pediatric cancer patients in the lobby of what was called in West Center Building 10. It's a massive clinical center in the middle of the campus. And I started to become really interested in the long-term outcomes of children who undergo rigorous treatment for cancer. And if you look at the literature, what we can see is that because of disease progression, because of chemotherapy, and because of prolonged hospitalization, you have poor outcomes in everything from a child's psychological well-being to their financial status later in life as an adult. So across several different categories by which we would be able to see how they were performing in adult life later on. And so this really read, led me down a rabbit hole to investigate how we assess children like that, how we support them, how we come to understand how they're developing, and how we can mitigate any issues that we find in terms of their neurodevelopment or their brain and nervous system development. And what I found was that you have these clinical tests that are called neurodevelopmental assessments. And these assessments are administered by clinical psychologists or neuropsychologists within a hospital. And that is how we assess the child's development across various domains, is what we call them, various categories of skills and abilities that a child might have. So things like short-term memory or long-term memory, for example, or processing speed. And a child has to sort of repeatedly go back to a specialist to be assessed. And there's a lot of limitations to that, including expense, including accessibility, and a few other issues that are inherent to the tests themselves. I had a real lifelong interest in educational games as well, being a kid that was basically reared on educational games. And I started to think, is there a way that we could integrate the two? Could I somehow to take these neurodevelopmental assessments, which seemed incredibly boring and unengaging, and also had a lot of other issues associated with them, and build that into some kind of game? And that was really where Brightlobe began, was that simple idea, that concept that perhaps we could do something a bit different and take a different approach to this problem within healthcare. So I started to work on it. Uh, by that point, I had also undertaken research at uh, Great Ormond Street, so the Institute of Child Health, which is a institute above Ormond Street Hospital, 
Or of course, in the cafeteria, I was observing the same things um, amongst children that weren't just cancer patients, but had other rare diseases as well. And to build a prototype until really just a few years ago when Brightlobe was formally VC backed and we received a nice injection of funding to build out an entire platform that would allow us to assess a child's neurodevelopment through a game and relay those insights back to both parents, uh, caregivers and clinicians. Well, that is uh, one hell of a journey. So what would be great to know is kind of day to day, what is it that Brightlobe is delivering at the moment? Uh, what does that look like as a game? What does it look like from a child as a user's point of view? Um, what does it look like from a parent's or clinician's point of view when they receive it too? So one thing our system isn't available yet. So it's in beta testing at the moment. But what I can speak to is another game that we released earlier this year, and that was called Kai Sanctuary. And the idea behind that game was to mitigate some of the effects we were seeing on children's psychological well-being, prolonged uh, isolation or confinement as a result of COVID-19. So we developed it specifically in response to that particular challenge. And a lot of the things that we learned in building our main game, so the assessment, actually trickled into that app as well. So in that particular app, Kai Sanctuary, what children can do is engage in several exercises. Of course, they're, they're fun games. That's how they're presented that are firmly inspired or based on cognitive behavioral therapy techniques. That's where they come from, specifically pertaining to mindful mindfulness techniques within that particular type of psychological therapy. So the idea is that if you're a child between ages three to eight years old, you can play that particular game. And the idea is that a character, Kai, he needs a child's help in helping to support animals that he takes care of within a sanctuary. And by helping Kai take care of the animals, you're actually learning strategies for how to take care of your own psychological well-being. So a good example of that is, for instance, has, had, has shown tremendous uh, results in helping children calm themselves and adults as well. So it's very good for anxiety um, and self-regulation, emotional self-regulation. And so we teach children how to do that in a game where they actually breathe in and out into a microphone. And by breathing in and out into a microphone, they charge up a creature that is then able to swim across the screen with every exhale, for instance. So it's, it's quite a compelling proposition for kids. But of course, it's teaching them a really valuable skill. So hopefully that provides an overview of exactly how our games are presented. They're very narrative driven as well. But tasks that you undertake in the game is obviously teaching you something very specific. So is that with, uh, say for instance, with the breathing you've just talked about, is there a specific uh, speed you're trying to teach them to breathe slowly to make it work? Is it very skill-based? No, so it's a really interesting question. What we try to do is make sure that we've integrated dynamic game balancing into our games to ensure that a child is learning incrementally. So of course, what we're trying to ensure is that, for example, children aren't hyperventilating into the microphone. That's actually one of the design challenges um, that you've astutely picked up on is how do we actually help kids regulate their breathing in a way that drives the point home. So there are sort of fail-safes that we've built into the technology to ensure that they're actually learning what speed at which you should breathe. And of course, there are certain game mechanics that help reinforce that. So for example, the character 
will actively tell you not to do it, or you actually can't push the swimming character forward if you are breathing too quickly, for example. So through a range of different approaches, we're able to fine tune the behavior that we'd like to elicit from the user or the player. Yeah, so I'm picturing now if you can practice breathing out for as long as possible, then your creature swims much faster. Precisely, or they glide across the screen. And what's even more fun about it is the intention is actually not just to help the creature swim, but we've got this sort of glowing plankton in a sort of river. And the idea is that you're also helping to guide and navigate that creature by playing with the accelerometer and the device as well. So it ends up being a really immersive experience. Um, and interestingly enough, we found that children as young as three years old and even two and a half really engage with that on smartphones, obviously, because they're not able to manipulate the iPad so easily. But it has proven really effective. Well, it sounds like it'd be fun for an adult too, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, that's what we hope is that it's a, it's more of a family-oriented experience that parents can sit next to their kids and actually enjoy playing the game together. Complete sense. Like I could imagine adults enjoying that too. What I want to pick back up on, Shivani, is what's really important is creating a narrative. Kind of where does that learning come from? And what you've just described sounds like, a, as you say, a really immersive virtual landscape. How important is that landscape? How important is the user interface and the user experience that results of that landscape within the narrative you're creating? Yeah, so I'd like to set the stage for this a little bit uh, to provide some context as to why I believe narrative is so important. So I think back in the, I'd say the 80s and 90s, and I'd probably say the peak of this was in the late 90s, maybe mid to late 90s, we had this heyday of educational gaming, at least in the US. We saw companies like Broderbund and The Learning Company, and they were creating titles like Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, which was a favorite of mine. And I also I loved this game called Gizmos and Gadgets, which honestly, I credit that largely with why I became an engineer. I found that game so fascinating. And they were all driven so strongly by narrative. And what was so brilliant about the developers behind those games was that they prioritized the storyline and the characters and really robust character development alongside whatever mechanisms they had to build in to, to get us to pay attention to the educational game. And it was seamless. These people were masters of educational gaming. And what they really understood was the way to have a child engaged or an app engaged was to create a storyline that could sort of capture their, their interest to a great extent. And so that's why they, they spent so much time and they invested so much time in, in the entertainment angle of this. Because once you situate that player within a narrative, the rest of the, the gameplay kind of drives itself. You don't really have to worry about the rest of the mechanics, whether they're compelling or that engaging. Um, so I was really focused on creating an IP specifically that children would find really interesting and engaging and really paying attention to narrative as a way of making sure that the experience was immersive for children. And I can speak a little to how we did that. So I've been working separately on a children's book, which was the narrative that we built and integrated into the games. And the reason that I took that approach was I realized that I wanted the experience to feel very rich. Often you would only showcase maybe a particular character or one environment, but instinct as human beings you know that there's more to this story by looking at things like set dressing or examining the nuance in a conversation. And it makes you naturally more curious to learn more. 
And that's not really speaking directly to the game loop or a really clever game mechanic. That's just human nature that we're speaking to. And so when I had that sort of rich narrative, it was really easy to build a game around it. We knew exactly how we should present these games, what types of tasks we could sort of build around some of the stories that we, we'd written. And that's why I took that particular approach. And that's kind of how, we, how that was borne out in the actual work that we've done. So do you feel like that sort of game world will now be the central game world for other games that you develop as well? Yeah, so we actually hint at it in Kai's Sanctuary. So Kai is actually part of that broader universe that we've built out. Uh, it certainly will be the case that this neurodevelopmental assessment will use that same story. But that isn't to say that we don't want to invest our time in, in other IPs, perhaps for an older audience. I think especially as it concerns children, you have to be really careful about the simplicity or complexity of the stories that you're presenting. That's something that we learned um, specifically as it pertained to user testing um, our, our Kai Sanctuary and the neurodevelopmental assessment is that these different cohorts, these different age groups respond very differently to different types of narratives and of course different presentations. So you have to be really careful with that. Because we're catering first to ages three to eight years old, we know the story that we've developed kind of works perfectly for that demographic. That's still quite a broad age range, I would say, for a game for kids. It is. One thing I've noticed is that children quite often don't like to be seen playing a game that is also played by younger children. Right. So that is something that we've we've noticed as well. And so really, when I say that we cater to ages three to eight, we've, sub, we've divided that into two uh, ranges. So three to five and six to eight. And the game itself essentially responds to a user's, the, the, the age a user has input in the beginning. So if you, for example, say that you're six years old, the presentation of that game would be significantly different if you had said that you were three years old. So it seems like you're taking on the Marvel Universe approach, actually, is about having multiple stories linked to each other, build the franchise out. But from the way you've approached it, I mean, this whole podcast is about gamification, but from your experience, has it been the story and narrative first, then the gamification in terms of the hierarchy of priority? Yes, it's funny you should say that because quite a lot of the time within our small team, we would say story first, science second, to be honest. And I'll, I'll tell you the reason for that. When you talk about serious games, especially as they pertain to healthcare, one of the things that often is overlooked, which is quite bizarre in my estimation, is this idea that, especially where it concerns children, compliance is king. If the child is not actually engaging with the game or the data that you provide these insights to whoever that third party is to serve. And yet we continue to make games in, in this particular industry that don't speak to children in any meaningful or compelling way. And that might seem like quite a, a damning verdict, but unfortunately it is something that I've kind of seen consistently, specifically in healthcare, where we can now see evidence that games and gamification can provide some really interesting insights into things like neurodevelopment, for instance, or other aspects of, of cognition or, or human health. But we aren't taking the time to actually craft the experience itself, the entertainment side of it. And if you don't do that for children, they simply won't play your game and that data just won't get aggregated. So really you should be starting with story first. You should be starting from a place of where a normal 
um, entertainment publisher or provider would be starting, which is story first, creating a really robust narrative, and then starting to integrate whatever objectives uh, you have around or into that. So that's why we took that approach. And in pharma or in pharmaceutical uh, jargon, they would they would call this an issue of compliance, right? But where pharmaceutical companies are talking about compliance, they're talking about how consistently, for example, a, a person takes their medication. If we're talking about a game, compliance simply means how often are they engaging with that game. And so for us, we talk about it as though we're talking about a medical device because essentially that's what it is. And we think, okay, how do we improve compliance? But really all we're saying is, how can we ensure that the child is really enjoying that experience? It's immersive and it's meaningful. It also opens up a second issue as it, again, specifically relates to children, which is, yes, we want children to engage with this game on a consistent basis, but how do we do that ethically? How do we make sure that the game is only played for a specified period of time, that the mechanics are ethical, that they are rewarding, but not so rewarding that we're edging into dubious territory? And those are all things that we've also had to navigate as a team, which, of course, like I can speak to in more detail. But this concept of compliance as it, as it pertains to medical devices and serious games is a really important one. And I certainly think coming, coming back to the point that it's always story first, or it should be. It's not just children and compliance. I think it's for the entire life spectrum um, because within all, I mean, the 21st century, the healthcare challenges are all non-communicable diseases. Uh, the real challenge there are things like compliance of different lifestyles. So that is what needs to be worked on. So I don't think it's just children and compliance alone with that one at all. Right, exactly. Uh, but I think as it, as it pertains to children, that's kind of the main issue because there are so many variables at play. Uh, as Pete said, You've got age ranges that are vastly different in their tastes and their attitudes and their abilities. Um, and that obviously poses uh, a challenge to UI and UX um, where, where development is concerned, but also in shaping your narrative, for instance. I think when we talk about the adult demographic, it's maybe slightly more homogenous in the sense that we know exactly what the general ability of the population would be and how they might generally respond to a particular stimulus with kids because they're still developing it's always different and there are a lot more variables and, and various factors that you also have to account for and that's what makes compliance it's especially difficult as as it relates to children i think you've picked a particularly challenging area yeah by going for the <laughs> children's side how long do you think someone needs to play the game for the skills you're teaching in it to be a habit so that you could then take the game away would you expect them to keep playing or hope for them to keep playing? How long would you hope they play for? It's an interesting question. And I, I would say that I'd like to come back to you after we're finished with some of our initial studies with, with the hard data to show you exactly um, how many of these skills are, are learned and practiced independently um, and away from the actual game itself. But what I would hope for is two things. I think that the game is brilliant as far as Kai Sanctuary is concerned. So I'll, I'll speak to that first because the objective of the second game is a little bit different. But let's say we're talking about the mindfulness-focused game, Kai Sanctuary. What I would like to see ideally is that it serves as, as training wheels in a sense. You've got children that are ages, again, three to eight years old. They're playing this game. 
And I would hope that it forms the foundation for them as adults to remember the basic guidelines of exactly how to practice exercise so that they continue to do that however they see fit, whether that means that they develop a mindfulness or meditation practice um, independently as adults, or they continue to even play the game. I think that that's immaterial as far as we're concerned. We like to teach the strategies, essentially, and for them to be able to take that away. So I think both. Obviously, we would love for them to continue playing the game, but even if they don't and they take away the key learning points from the game, I think that we would consider it a success. I'm to go back again one point you just raised. Well, Shivani. So we had a previous episode, we had Victoria on, who's an author, and she talked about the importance of kind gamification. And I don't think we've discussed anywhere near well enough within health and gamification, because the whole point is that we want people to repeat these healthy behaviours. In the same way you want the children kids you're working with to repeat these behaviours, but there's a limit. You don't want some level of addiction to happen. How do you have those discussions with the team and what is debated and what do you draw upon in terms of guidelines, textbooks, published papers to kind of define where you believe that balances on the, your ethics behind it? Yeah, great question. This was a focus of mine from the very beginning because all too often I've started to see that products or games designed for children will often utilize uh, game mechanics that are bordering on unethical, if I'm perfectly honest. And I think that's why we're starting to see recommendations from the American Academy of Pediatrics, for instance, that issue certain guidelines on things like screen time. And what really frustrates me about that as a developer is the fact that I think it too often becomes very heavy handed as far as criticizing the entire medium, because often it, it can really just be a verdict on the majority of publishers operating within that space, right? Not all developers are going to want to integrate mechanics that make screen time an issue. Some of us really care about the end user or the player or the child, as how, whoever it may be, and would specifically try to engineer a game loop and mechanisms that ensure that screen time or will try to ensure that screen time doesn't become a major issue. What's really interesting, and I'll give you an example um, as far as how we've decided to do that, is to look specifically at game economy where children are concerned. What we didn't want to do as far as Kai Sanctuary was concerned was to build an economy where children were basically trading in currency. So currency is, is the way that we know it to to operate within our adult world so for example for completing a particular task you have x amount of coins or uh, gold bars or ingots or whatever and you can trade that in for a particular item that you can then use to do something else so for kai sanctuary we were really experimenting to see what we could do again uh, to foster as you say a more a, a kinder approach and so what we, what we decided to do was to a sort of avatar where a child was taking care of another creature and in helping the main character carry out various exercises, you were then gaining the ability to better serve the creature that you had decided to steward. And so, of course, there are themes in there that, that kind of border on the same type of thing, which is, okay, you're doing something to get something to do something else. But we really tried to stretch ourselves to see what types of behaviors can we naturally encourage? Can we encourage compassion? Can we somehow encourage empathy? 
it does it actually make a tangible difference to talk about a system that doesn't depend simply on bartering, trading, purchasing, buying, but is there potentially a system which involves things like sharing, helping, cultivating a relationship? Can we, can we emphasize that somehow within the narrative and cage it within terms that don't seem transactional? Is there something else that we could cage this in? And so that's the approach that we took. As to how we came across that or how we consolidated that particular approach, it was a lot of discussion with our academic collaborators. So we work very closely with a number of academic institutions here in the UK, but also in the US. Um, we're quite lucky to be um, in touch a distinguished professor of developmental uh, and behavioral pediatrics at Stanford in the US. So we had a lot of really um, in and transparent conversations with her about the work that we were undertaking and how exactly we could foster this within a game. And of course, looking at the literature is something that's incredibly important as well. Unfortunately, in terms of looking at what else is out there, I, again, I do find that there are game mechanics designed for children that do seem more akin to, you know, what you would see that would that would foster more addictive behaviors. And that's certainly something we wanted to stay away from. Well, I really like everything you said then about your approach to this, <laughs> almost going in and absorbing it for a minute. But I really liked I mean, it, it sounded to me like you can almost teach financial literacy as well as part of the game. That's where I was going in my head. Yeah, I mean, I think apart from financial literacy, I think what we're, yeah, what we're trying to do is figure out whether there's a more sustainable system that we can teach children. So, and I think that speaks so fundamentally to the types of philosophical arguments that I find myself enmeshed in these days, um, the world being what it is right now. And, I think so much of that ethos and so much of my thinking on that has actually become part of, you know, the media that we're creating, which is how do we teach children how to exist in a world more sustainably where they're giving as well as receiving, where, where for everything they take, they're putting something back, whether that pertains to relationships or to the environment around them, how do we teach them to be more responsible in that sense? So I think, again, that ties back to what Ben was asking about before, as far as narrative is concerned, because that's the place where we can teach a lot of those lessons. That's the place where we can integrate a lot of that thinking and make sure that those messages are communicated to kids, even in a game that's, you know, just about mindfulness. So there's a lot that you can do to communicate these messages. And the way that you do that is primarily through these narratives. There's incredible ambitions there, Shivani, in terms of changing a mindset to make a more caring, empathetic uh, generation that think about how they should live more sustainably, that actually is about supporting everyone around them and not having a more selfless and selfish approach to life. Um, so dialing down a bit more, uh, what do you have any favorite games yourself, whether it's a video game, a board game, and kind of, and what has it taught you and what is it you liked about it? Yeah, I'm going to go out on a limb here and talk a little bit about board games. <laughs> so I, I'm a huge Scrabble player. We used to have this coveted Scrabble board uh, when we were kids. It was, I don't even know where it must have limited, it been a limited edition version, but it was on a wooden swivel and it was just the most beautiful um, version of this board game. And I just love the logic of Scrabble and the fact that those rules really carefully there's a lot of of little hacks that you can kind of get away with um so i really i've always really enjoyed scrabble i love 
clue. I think you guys call it Cluedo here. It, that's really interesting to me, and, and I'll tell you why. Because Clue always stood out to me as a game that did integrate a narrative very loosely because it seemed to have very well-rounded characters. Um, even just in, in communicating with our other characters and, and roughly knowing the story that was kind of set out in the instructions and the how to play. But what's really interesting, obviously, is there is a whole movie that was created around Clue, which I also really enjoyed. I think it had Tim Curry in it. It's absolutely brilliant, obviously for, for adults, I should say that, but really, really clever film. And I thought that was really interesting that they took a board game and they turned it into a film because there must have been something you know, intrinsic and inherent to that board game itself where someone looked at that and thought this would make a really good movie. Um, so really enjoy enjoy Cluedo as well. And in terms of games that I have played as a kid, very into all of the learning company games. I should say that I was one of those kids that didn't have a console until uh, my teenage, just wasn't allowed to have one. So I was the kid that was always over playing someone else's Sega. But what I was allowed to have uh, were these educational games, which is obviously what started all of this. Um, so I, I was really into the Carbon San Diego games, which interestingly has become an IP that has been so powerful that it was spun off into a Netflix animated series that was released just recently. I'm not sure if it's so my, my daughter's addicted to that. And oh, so I've so watched quite a few of those. Yeah, it's it's oh, the, is it the animated series that she's into or yeah. the, the video game? Okay, well maybe maybe have her check out some of the the games that that series was based on because they are absolutely fantastic. It's really funny. We have this sort of family story where I loved that game. The next morning, it was a weekend. I come in to find my dad looking really tired, and he goes, "Oh, that's it. I I did it. I'm a super sleuth, which is like the highest level of investigator you can get in that game." And it turned out he'd been playing that too morning because he was just so into it and of course it's a game about geography but that really I think solidifies that point which is that they were really compelling for everyone to play really interesting games so I loved that game loved Oregon Trail which is a bit of a weird one um, I'm not sure if it was obviously if it had such a massive global release but the idea was that you were one of the pioneers moving westward in a wagon and it doesn't sound very interesting but it just became this legendary game that all children might have encountered within school environments and then took home. So I really enjoyed that one. And then these days in terms of a game that I really liked, there was, there was a game that I've been playing on my Xbox called Raji, which was created by an Indian um, indie developer. And I find that absolutely fascinating because it showcases uh, Hindu and Indian mythology in a way that I've, I've never really seen before. And the graphics are absolutely stunning, but think about the narrative, which is also really amazing. So I would encourage anyone who's interested in that kind of game to check it out. Can I come back to the game Clue or Cluedo that you were talking about? Because yeah. you said something really interesting to me, which is, there isn't much narrative in it, but it feels really strong. And I, I feel in some many of the examples I've seen out there of gamification that sometimes you can get someone hooked on a bit of story in just a paragraph or two. My question for you, I guess, is how much narrative have you needed to create? Is it just a structure? A world structure within it or have you got some in-depth story? Well I should say that there is a difference between um, necessity and and what we've actually ended up with so I, I should start by saying that I really enjoy writing and I enjoy developing narrative. Do I think that all of that narrative was necessary to create the games that we have now? Probably not but what I do hope is that in some sense 
that backstory and a lot of that development, character development, plot development will actually assist us in creating uh, really robust and rich narratives that you may not necessarily encounter all of the finer details within gameplay, but it does leave you curious. And I would venture to say that a lot of what ends up in that paragraph probably came from a lot of uh, drafting uh, to start with. So I'm sure that, that that was sort of whittled down to a paragraph and that's sort of the out, what we got in the end. I think there were characters in the latest editions that got switched in and out. I think Mrs. White or something. One of the characters no longer exists and was subbed in for someone else, which was a little sad. So there, there are definitely things going on behind the closed doors of writers' rooms that we'll never see. But yeah, I think you're right. I, I don't know that our games necessarily require this level of narrative, but at the same time, that's what lends it its rich flavor um, and the feeling of total immersion. I don't think any of the time spent on building out the world and the characters is ever wasted. Not it at makes, all. It makes your whole world richer and deeper in all sorts of other ways. And what, what comes to mind, actually, is there's a theater company called Punch Drunk. And I've always been really fascinated by the work that they do because um, their whole type of theater and approaches is essentially promenade performances, meaning that They'll rent out these massive warehouses and all that happens is you walk into this massive warehouse where there are multiple sets on every single floor and the story is happening all the time. So there's there's no set place for the audience to sit and there's no place for the actual action to be unfolding. It's unfolding all around you. So, and the, and the additional component is that everything is interactive. So if you run into a character they know that you're there, they might interact with you, they might have a conversation with you, but that whole story is kind of unraveling around you. And what's really interesting about that is how they use set design to, to basically portray what's going on in the story. And I think it speaks to what I'm saying, which is the fact that every single time you walk into a, a punch drunk uh, theater performance, you are engaging with the story by looking at things like set dressing, by your random interactions with characters, by um, talking to other audience members, for instance, about the things that they've seen. And that is how this story becomes cohesive in your own mind. And I think games are very similar to that. It's almost exactly the same thing where, you know, you'll wander around, you'll bump into this or that. There, there might be a tooltip or a voiceover, an audio cue or something that tells you a little about a bit about what it is that you're encountering. And in your own mind, you're actually formulating whatever that narrative is. And what's interesting about Punch Drunk as well is that every single time that you attend a singular performance, it's always different. That narrative might change slightly. Now, you've got quite a big world picture going on, I sense, in each game you produce. And you've talked a little bit about the team, such as the academics you work with. And I'm wondering if you're like lead narrative designer, as it sounds like you like the writing. And how many people do you think it takes to make a good serious game, what roles are there particularly that you find critical? Well, one thing that I do want to say is um, in terms of the presentation of the game and the narratives, they, they are designed for children, so they aren't overly complex, but I do think that they do the job in creating an immersive environment, um, maybe even as compared to some of, some of what else is out there. So that's the first thing that I should say. So hopefully people won't expect the equivalent of a punch-drunk theater performance when they download Kai Sanctuary. But yes, it's very entrenched in narrative. In terms of our team, I'm really proud uh, to say that we are quite small. So we've got um, about two and a half additional people in addition to myself. So that's a couple of engineers and an artist, and we all work together uh, to make this happen. 
And to that point, I would say that there is some freedom and some, some very clear mechanism there that the more limited you are sometimes in terms of resources, in terms of resources, the more imaginative you actually can be. I, I guess they say that necessity is the mother of invention and we come up with some really interesting ways around problems because there are so few of us. Um, so I think that that's kind of what's driven a lot of our of our more imaginative approaches to issues is because we just don't have the same budget and resources as other bigger studios or other larger startups. Well, that sounds very hopeful for others as well to build these games. Ben, I'm conscious I'm monopolizing our guest. <laughs> have you got anything? Yeah, I mean, what examples have you seen that really um, you think have been fantastic in the role of gamification in health? Um, and also, why do you think the future sits within gamification health for uh, public health and the health of the planet? In terms of gamification, just generally, um, and I'll kind of come back to your point about gamification and health uh, shortly, I have really enjoyed uh some of the apps that I'm seeing on the App Store and Google Play, one of which is Skyview, which is an app that allows you to capture um, where, what constellations you're seeing in the sky at any given moment. I think that obviously it isn't narrative driven in the traditional or conventional sense in which, in which I've been speaking. Um, but what's really interesting about it is it adds this layer over the natural world, over the real world, so to speak. And it allows you to really engage with it in a way that you wouldn't normally be able to, um, especially among a population that is a little less literate about the world. And so I find that incredibly compelling um, just because it finally takes the ability of our technology uh, to to capture sort of high resolution images and map over things that we're seeing spatially and really makes uh, tremendous use out, out of it. And it's, it's very simple, but you can tell obviously the engineering and the technology that underlies that is very complicated and very elegant. Um, so that is one example that I've really enjoyed looking at. In terms of health, so I think I've spoken a little bit before, and perhaps this is me just being a little bit um, selective, but I think I have yet to see a, a good example, I think away from speaking specifically about the pediatric healthcare space where I think, okay, you know, they really hit the nail on the head. But of course, in terms of immersive VR, for instance, there are, and, and AR, there are several examples within education. And I think that probably education as an industry has done this a little bit better than healthcare has. So that's why I brought up Skyview. Where do you think the future could go in terms of the role of gamification in well-being? It's an interesting question because I think when we think of gamification, we always think about um, sort of a, a, traditional, a traditional game that we engage with through a headset or through a tablet or through a mobile phone. And I think what we haven't realized, perhaps, is that there is a, a layer of gamification to almost every type of healthcare technology that we interact with. So if you look at a Fitbit, for instance, um, you might not realize it, but a lot of the mechanics that are built into that are 100% based on, um, how do I put this uh, diplomatically, based on ensuring that your, the reward circuitry in your mind is activated in repeatedly engaging with it. I think we've seen that with things like social media, um, how these websites um, keep us coming back and similar uh, mechanisms and mechanics are at play whenever we're engaging with 
um, an Apple Watch or a Fitbit. So a lot of what we're doing already is gamified. We just don't really realize it. This concept, for example, which was expounded um, first by Fitbit, the company, the 10,000 steps, for instance, that is a, an incredible example of, of adding a gamified layer um, over, over our wearables. So there isn't a lot, I don't, I don't think, um, if I'm recollecting this sort of correctly, a lot of evidence to suggest that 10,000 steps in particular is a, is a particularly good or relevant number. But, um, but in terms of how they built that into their wearables, uh, the amount of times I've been sitting sort of at a, at a dinner with a friend and they kind of get up and take a few steps backwards and forwards so that they get to their 10,000 and the big fanfare that happens on your Fitbit when, when you accomplish that is an excellent example of gamification, but of course not necessarily in the way that we all know it. So I think we've, we've gone quite far um, as far as gamification within healthcare is concerned. We just don't realize it yet. And I think a lot of those mechanics will be applied to potentially other problems in the future. Uh, problems to help uh, or issues where we want to help um, provide behavioral nudges or cues to people where it comes to things like um, addiction issues, things like smoking or, or alcohol, for instance. Um, are there ways that we could build those types of gamified cues into things like wearables and software um, in our phones? So I think what I see is sort of an evolution of those types of mechanics, things that are almost imperceptible that we don't really notice, but have in fact added a gamified layer on, on top of our daily lives. I think that was a great note to finish on uh, in terms of how do we take the minor game mechanics and put them into all the kind of elements that we're doing within health. Pete, do you have any final words you want to sign off on? Just that I agree with that. I think this episode, by the way, should be called Story First, Science Second. I like that. Um, okay. because the 10,000 steps is yet another example of that as well, because that's a narrative goal that's been set. And, uh, it's just been an absolute pleasure listening to you. And I, if I have one last question, it's to find out what are you going to be doing next? <laughs> what a, what a great question. <laughs> I wish I had a very simple answer for that question, but, but put simply, um, we've been working, as I said, on this developmental assessment, and that is the next thing to, that you'll see from Brightlobe. Um, so we're really looking forward to taking that out of beta testing and actually releasing it. There are, of course, uh, a through obviously as a medical device, but once we've overcome those, then we are going to be really happy to launch that quite soon. And what's the next bit of story you're going to write for the Kai world? For Kai, uh, so there, Kai actually exists in, in a larger world. Um, and what I'm hoping to do is round that out potentially into its own manuscript. So we'll see what happens. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's been absolutely brilliant and wishing you all the best with Bright Lobe and all your other endeavours. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.